Here at IMC, we believe half of financial literacy is about knowledge. Now that other half, now that's lifestyle. It's the way you live. It's the way you move. So together we are going to demystify this good old world of finance and wealth building through our intentional guests and dialogue. Make sure you subscribe, stay tuned, and of course, stay planted. Good people, we are back for another IMC recap. Super excited about what we are going to cover today. I do want to shout out, um, appreciate everyone that has reached out uh, in regards of just the content, giving feedback, comments. Um, actually been getting a really, really uh, good feedback in regards of just the information we've been able to cover. So I'm excited about where we're going. We got a lot of uh, unique updates. So make sure you comment, like, subscribe, share all that good jazz so we can increase our activity. Um, so we got five articles today. Um, and then as well, we got a bonus of a video that we are going to preview for an overall review, right? And so uh, the video at the end is going to be a documentary from Frontline that highlights a very significant event that happened here in Jefferson, uh, Jefferson County, specifically um, Birmingham, but just throughout the county and in, in, in the city that um, put Birmingham on a map in a way in which we can pull out some financial educational opportunities to further unpack what caused it all. So with all that being said, if you haven't liked or comment or subscribe by now, you got some time because we just getting rolling. All right. So let's get into our first article. As you can see through due to the title, self-employed people are four times wealthier than workers on average. So we felt like this was a very interesting article for us to uh, start with, especially the fact that it's actually sourced, this information is sourced from the Small Business Administration. So let's roll through it. Now, if you are listening to this and you say, hold on, self-employed Americans have a larger median net worth than their regular working peers, don't quit your job today. Let's let's keep getting into the information um, before you make any uh, quick movements. But we think the overall data that's covered is is very helpful in regards of the context of uh, the economy. So as you can see here in these three bullet points, self-employment is one way to achieve economic mobility, um, especially as wage wages decline for workers. That's a good point. Um, but who has access to that economic mobility is still uneven. So a new release from the Small Business Administration's Office uh, of Advocacy finds that self-employed people on average are wealthier than their non-self-employed peers. Specifically, the median net worth for self-employed families was $380,000 in 2019. And then for the families of workers, it was $90,000, meaning that self-employed families had a net worth over four times larger than their peers in the workforce. Now, it's not clear if the self-employed uh, choose self-employment because they started with, with greater uh, uh, wealthier or if they created it, but I think that's a typo, if they started with greater wealth or if, it, or if they created it or both. Um, I'll send them an invoice uh, for that update. Um, but that number could be skewed, as you can imagine, um, by families who are earning a lot more. So there's a lot more generational wealth within families that may have been established within a business and maintained within that business that may skew that number 
you know, we could use the the Walmarts, uh, uh, the Walmart family, for for example. Uh, but ultimately, including those outlying wealthier families, the average wealth for self-employed families would be 2.7 million. So if you include those outliers, that's what that's what it would be. And so it drops it down to 388,000 and some change. Um, so now this gets into how businesses impact the black and Hispanic families. So the um, SBA finds that the higher net worth families are more likely to have business equity. And it makes up a larger share of non-financial assets for white families than their black and Hispanic peers. White families have been increasing their business equity shares steadily over the last two decades. But according to the SBA, those shares fluctuate with the business cycle for black and Hispanic families. So it sounds like there is a bit of volatility and we can attest to this just due to the type of consulting work that we provide for business owners, regardless of race, but also for black and Hispanic business owners and the work that we do within a community that due to their instability, I can see why it will be difficult for them to continue to increase their business equity if they have access to capital issues, if they have issues when it pertains to adapting the technology, if there's issues to uh, securing a, a, a consistent client base, right? And so is the business appreciating? Is Does the business have access to allow this type of um, uh, equity to be acquired. So there's a number of uh, issues within those communities, but it's, it's, it's also good data to, to highlight. All right. So really quick, uh, one of the last pieces we're going to discuss here is that, um, and again, just quick data, uh, JP Morgan Chase Institute finds that white small uh, business owners held two and a half times more liquid wealth than black small business owners. I think the uh, key word to magnify is liquid wealth, right? Um, and then at the end of 2020 alone, white, household, white households held a total net worth over 20 times uh, that black households, could, uh, according to the Federal Reserve. Uh, and then 2020, you can see the increase in the uh, wealth for white households. So America's increased their total household wealth by 9.58 trillion. Uh, black Americans added 520 billion. So we definitely see the discrepancies there in regards of the numbers, but it's, it's, it's good to highlight the difference in net worth for business owners versus for those uh, that are on salary. All right, let's keep moving. So we are going to jump into crypto. So we thought that this was a unique and somewhat of a facetious article. So this is a contractor. As you can see in the title, my employer paid me in crypto. It rose 700% in value. <laughs> now he wants the, the employees to return the crypto and accept dollars. Now this, just to give a, a timestamp, this was updated. Um, this was first published May of 2021 and it was updated about 19 days later, May 22nd. And so I know we're in August. But I, this was the first time that I saw this uh, uh, information. And so gentleman wrote into looks like the uh, the moneyist um, uh, platform. And here we go. Let's see what he's talking about. I did some business development for a tech company on a contract basis. The CEO stated that I would be paid in crypto when I started the work in the spring of 2020. He added a clause to the contract saying the company may elect to pay me in U.S. dollars. All right. Okay. Smart man in this next paragraph, I struck out that part of the contract because if I was going to risk getting paid in crypto and the price all of a sudden appreciated, I didn't want the company to revert to pay me in U.S. dollars. 
I think that is just a good food for thought when it pertains to contract negotiation. Make sure you read your contract more importantly, but also make sure you position a contract that operates in your best interest. In August of 2020, I received my payment. I received payment for the contract working cryptocurrency. Since then, the prices of cryptocurrency have skyrocketed. So as of this moment, <laughs> this is back in uh, May, the crypto that this individual received went up 700%, right? So uh, <laughs> um, another quote here, he's really more so talking about the CEO. I've worked with this person for many years and he has a tendency to try to change the terms of payment after agreeing on a certain way of operating. Um, all right, so he received the email from the CEO and this is what the CEO said. Uh, hey, sir, since you did not generate any revenue for the company and are not currently doing work or any follow up work, please send back all the crypto received in August of 2020. And then you can invoice the company the hours uh, worked in U.S. dollars. So basically stating that he can invoice in U.S. dollars at seven times less than what the crypto is worth today. Now, that's a little funny, right? What if the cryptocurrency decrease? Would he still write the individual and say, hey, you haven't been productive. I'm going to pay you more uh, so we can go in and convert this in U.S. dollars because the cryptocurrency decreased. I don't think that would be the case. Um, but ultimately, I think that this shows the um, really the adoption of cryptocurrency and when it pertains to payments and um, uh, the utility of it. We don't know which one it was, it, you know, from. You know, we could probably look at the date and see the cryptocurrencies that performed that well in between um, August and we'll just say May uh, and some change. See who incurred a 700 percent return. But uh, regardless of which coin it was or, or the uh, crypto that was uh, utilized, uh, just make sure you read your contracts. We'll, we'll, we'll just we'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you read your contracts. Hall of Famer Deion Sanders says, if you look good, you play good. Here at the Planning Podcast, we believe that proper money management is important. And we also know that being financially fit represents the way in which you live. Now, just by listening to this podcast, you are a part of the movement. And one of the most critical aspects of this is the way in which we spell planning. The A is replaced with the Delta sign. And those that are familiar with mathematics, Delta represents change. A very consistent theme that we noticed that regardless of the objective, big or small, if you want any change to occur for the better, you're going to have to start planning. Be sure to check out our merchandise at www.stayplanning.com. S-T-A-Y-P-L-A-N-N-I-N-G. We'll see you there. All right, now we are going to jump into a bit of news um, around sports. So if you've been able to keep up, good man, J.R. Smith, uh, the NCAA actually approved J.R. Smith to play collegiate golf for North Carolina A&T and HBCU. Um, and again, this is Yahoo Sports. Former NBA sharpshooter J.R. Smith is uh, officially set to become a college golfer. Um, now, I don't know if everybody will call him a sharpshooter. Now, JR has moments now. He definitely has moments. Um, <laughs> I'm, and I'm only joking. The NCAA cleared the veteran of 16 NBA seasons to play golf for North Carolina A&T University and HBCU 
on Tuesday after a review of his amateur status, according to the undefeated shout out to LeBron James and their platform. Um, with that being said, one, I remember immediately I was saying like, man, how did that happen? I thought, you know, play college ball somewhere, but I, I, I was reminded that uh, J.R. Smith was actually drafted out of um, high school. So um, with him going back to school, shout out to going to HBCU. We cover that in our podcast, just the uh, HBCU to NFL pipeline in regards with the historical context. Um, so shout out to that movement. One thing I do want to highlight with this. So we see J.R. Smith. We see that once he is um, a part of the team and officially approved, you see LeBron James uh, shouting him out. Um, the question I have with this, and I would love if anybody could chime in. Um, uh, I know we have uh, Jim Cavell with um, Influencer that could give us some insight on this, but does he qualify to get paid? via name, image, and likeness with him being a collegiate athlete? Like, is there any type of technicalities there due to the fact that he played in an NBA, but ultimately does he qualify for name, image, and likeness? And if so, I think indirectly, even if he doesn't qualify, this attention that JR is going to bring to the team and to the, to the school is going to uh, permeate to the other golfers. And so you may have a golfer there that's like, Hey, I'm the next Tiger Woods, but no one knows about him just yet. This attention that JR could bring and the resources that they could bring hopefully um, allows the school to flourish. But I am very curious if he is able to uh, generate revenue based off of his name, image, and likeness now that he is a uh, college athlete with North Carolina A&T. All right, let's keep rolling. Keep them comments coming on in, good people. Keep them coming on in. All right, we're still in the sports arena. This one was a bit interesting. So we have uh, Knicks, Nerlens No. Look, everybody know I had to call DA to make sure I, you know everything was going on well. I'm just calling Mr. Noel. I don't even know how to pronounce his first name. Maybe Nerlens, Mr. Noel. My bad, brother, if I messed that up. But he is suing Rich Paul, his agent, saying that he cost him $58 million in earnings. Now, that was interesting. So I said, all right, let's get into it. So Nick Center, so it looks like he's a big man, filed a lawsuit on Monday against Rich Paul, a prominent NBA agent for Clutch Sports, accusing him of violating promises as well as causing the big man to miss out on nearly $58 million in lost contract money. Now, and I'm going to peruse through this. Um, uh, so initially, um, let's see here. Initially, he was represented by a different agent. Um it looks like so happy Walters uh, when he became a free agent. So it looks like he was represented by him. Uh, but fast forward within the conversation, speaking with um, uh, Rich Paul, he just said, look, I know you have a four year, $70 million offer on the table. I think if you play one more year, blow it out of the water. And as you can see here, told Noel that he was a $100 million man. So by taking the advice, he said, all right, well, I'm going to bet on myself and uh, I'm going to sign a one-year contract. And now, again, this is in 2017. I believe he signed a $4 million contract. So in, in signing the single offer, Paul also encouraged Noel to seek a match contract deal on the free agent market for, for the 2017 and 2018 season, uh, according to the lawsuit. 
However, in December of 2017, this is one of the biggest risks of taking that strategy is injuries. Noel tore a ligament in his thumb and played only 30 games, averaging career lows in points, rebounds, blocks, and minutes. Then according to Noel's attorneys, Paul began to lose interest. I won't comment on that. That's something that will be addressed in court and by Rich Paul. But ultimately, moving forward, he ended up signing deals that he wasn't the biggest fan of. And as you can see here, you know, hindsight's 2020. Apparently that there was some communication that did not reflect um, uh, with different teams that the agent did not share with the athlete. And he was upset about that. But also there's another article that shares that the reason why the athlete is upset because he got an invoice. Hey, 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 you signed your contract, but you have yet to pay us. So I think that there was a little bit of frustration that triggered that. So we'll see what manifests from here. Um, as you can see, in November, he signed a one-year contract for $5 million with the Knicks before ending his relationship with Clutch Sports. The next month, as his uh, frustrations built, he learned that Paul had a history of mismanaging and ignoring. I'm not going to get into that. That's just in a lawsuit. Um, so we'll see. We shall see. So uh, best of luck to the brother in regards of just his athletic mobility um hopefully that injury doesn't limit him to continue to play for another three to five years or the years that he does uh, desire um, but i thought that this was an interesting perspective considering the the amount of impact that rich paul has made in the sports um industry um so i'm curious to he hasn't said anything public since this you know as i'm recording this and so we'll see what he says uh once that manifests all right we're going to transition out of sports we are going to get into something that is actually a bit frustrating for me, uh, extremely frustrating. Um, and it's actually around a report that came out yesterday. So, Fed's report, most rental assistance has still not gone out. Let's get into it. States and localities have only distributed 11% of the billions of dollars in federal rental assistance, the Treasury Department said Wednesday. Again, this is yesterday. This is the latest sign the program is struggling to reach the millions of tenants of risk, uh, at risk of uh, eviction. The latest data shows the pace of distribution increased in July over June and that nearly a million households have been helped. Uh, let's keep going. But with, with the excuse me, with the Supreme Court considering challenging the federal eviction moratorium, the concern is that the wave of evictions will happen uh, before much of the assistance has been distributed. Uh, some three and a half million people in the U.S. on uh, as of August 16th said they face eviction in the next 60 days, in the next two months. So. And this was prior to the pandemic. I'm going I'm to share some data here that's not listed on this page. Um, 15 million people across the country pay 50% or more of their take-home pay towards their rent each month. As you can see here, $46 billion was approved to be dis uh, distributed across all the states um, throughout the country uh, to help Americans pay their rent. And unfortunately, seven months into that program, only 11% has been given out. There are 16 states across the country that have less than 5%, and there are nine states across the country that have less than 3%. So 
So when we think about the frustration of the landlords and the frustrations of the renters, now there is conversation and a movement to um, end the eviction moratorium. I don't think that's the issue if I'm speaking to landlords. Landlords, I think the issue was the the states and um, municipalities dispersing the rental assistance because if you were able to receive the rent that you know that go may go back seven months, eight months, even there's uh, assistance that goes back all the way up to eleven months. If the process wasn't so archaic, you would have already been able to receive your payments and continue to operate um, with as much stability as possible, right? Um, also, when you think about the number of residents, now, those that know what we do in the program that we establish here in Birmingham, we have our financial navigator program. There are a number of residents, a number of residents. And that's why this frustrates me. Um, it is, it's, it's, and it's very disappointing that less than 11% has been distributed because there are residents here in Birmingham that filed for, uh, rental assistance in November of last year that was approved that have yet to send the money to the landlord. So they are consistently being bombarded with messages and emails and threats, and it's out of the renter's hands. And it's due to this archaic process that's been implemented. And again, as of yesterday, they simplified the process a bit to make sure that these resources could get to the landlords. Um, but ultimately, I think this is um, unacceptable um, because it is causing a posture of frustration for at the renters, um, but it's also causing a tough spot for the landlords because the tool that was created to address that isn't even working effectively. And so we got plenty of recommendations. I'm not going to get into it now, uh, but we do see that as a great opportunity to uh, help fill the gap. All right. So this is the bonus. All right, we're about 20 minutes in. This is the bonus. We'll have a couple of minutes of this video. We will be getting deep into it. I think this will probably be our most watched video, especially from Birmingham residents, just considering the topic. And so I'm just going to play a piece of it, close on up, and then we will announce uh, what is uh, next to come. And so hopefully this has been helpful. Keep the comments coming. Love to get your feedback on just the rental assistance. And uh, um, if you're a landlord, definitely would love to get your feedback or even invite you on a podcast to, to, to discuss um, just the best ways in which you've been able to handle it. All right. One quick second. Let's go ahead and um, get this last piece rolling. And again, just resort, resort back to my comment from earlier. Here we go. He says, have I got a deal for you? We've got this new product. It's called a swap. And we know how to work the swap program to help write off uh, where you don't have to raise rates on your citizen. In late 2002, a former local TV reporter turned politician named Larry Langford took charge of the county's finances. I think the bankers in New York had to stifle the laugh. Because you had a guy here who had no idea about uh, swaps, had no idea about auction rate securities, uh, had no idea um, about the financial market. Langford decided to consult a friend, Birmingham financial advisor Bill Blunt. Blunt looks at it. It's a pretty good deal, Larry. 
we just swap this debt. You won't have to raise rates. Everything looks great. Here we go. Okay. All right, guys, here we go. So, uh, they didn't just do it once. They did it several times. They were swapping variable to fixed, and they were swapping fixed back to variable. Where's the market going? If it goes up, we do this. If it goes down, we do this. I mean, it was just basically commodity trading because they were just literally betting against the market. Had one of its worst days on record. Dow but what the county didn't account for was a big change in the markets. In 2008, it all went horribly wrong. This was the day we were afraid to wake up to. The financial institutions are in trouble. Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. All right. The worst financial crisis in modern times. And perhaps the end of an era in American business. In 2008, when the music stopped, in the fall, they pull out the chairs. There's several chairs short. The county suddenly owed hundreds of millions of dollars in fees and penalties to its debt holders, including J.P. Morgan. When the derivatives and the variable rates shot up, we knew we could not sustain the debt that we had amassed. And so we just put off the fact that we were in bankruptcy, just like an alcoholic who never admits that they're alcoholic. And there was more. It turns out LaCroix had paid money to Langford's friend, Bill Blunt. According to federal prosecutors, the money was for bribes. $3 million from J.P. Morgan to Blunt, who in turn passed money and gifts to Langford. I can't say that J.P. Morgan paid bribes, certainly didn't pay any bribes to, to Larry. Now, what J.P. Morgan did is they paid some benefits to Bill Blunt. Is it bribery? Is it uh, undue influence? Is it good or is it not good? It depends on the situation. But certainly, it's at least got the potential for corruption. In 2010, Langford went to jail on charges of bribery and fraud. He is currently serving a 15-year sentence. Langford's friend, Bill Blunt, cooperated with authorities and is serving four and a half years. J.P. Morgan settled with the SEC for $25 million and was ordered to forgive the county fees totaling $697 million. Charles LaCroix was sentenced to three months in jail after a similar deal in Philadelphia. Jefferson County, Alabama was going to teach America how to use swaps and derivatives. Now it's running out of money. In November 2011, after years of corruption and mismanagement, Jefferson County filed the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. All right. So as you can see here, that is a lot to unpack. Um, and we will be doing that in our next uh, video. And so be on the lookout. Um, I think there's a lot of questions that we had. Uh, so we did a little bit of research. And um, as I shared before this, even some of the comments in the video, we are extracting this from Frontline, which is a documentary. Those are not our opinions of the individuals. We don't know the details of the deals. Um, and who did what and who got what. We don't know any of that. And we are not here to, um, um, we'll, I'll just say, um, reinvigorate or or uh, double down on some of the, the terminology that was used thus far. But we're just going to extract the financial educational components that we feel like will be helpful 
um, for our audience. And so hopefully you've been able to enjoy this recap. We had to switch it up today. I don't know. It was something about my polo that, that was messing up the lighting. So we're in a conference room. Um, but of course, be sure to share, subscribe and like and provide some um, comments on material you want us to cover. And so as of right now, we are highlighting different topics that we feel like will be helpful. Um, and, uh, we'll be including additional interviews. Make sure you check out our previous content on either YouTube. And, and of course we'll be uploading these to the podcast. Uh, but outside of that, hopefully you have a great rest of the week. As you know, when it's after three 30 on Thursday, it's pretty much the weekend. So, uh, stay safe. And of course, stay planning.